0: Across the country, the community composting movement is growing. Small-scale composting provides communities immediate opportunities for reducing waste, improving local soil, creating jobs, and fighting climate change. You're listening to the Composting for Community podcast, where we'll bring you stories from the people doing this work on the ground and in the soil. Welcome back to the Composting for Community podcast. I'm your host, Sophia Hossein, from the Institute for Local Self Reliance's Composting for Community Initiative. Today's co-host is our fabulous intern, Alondra Sierra. In this episode, I'm joined by Nando Rodriguez, an environmental facilitator at the Brotherhood Sister Soul in Harlem, New York. The Brotherhood Sister Soul, ROSIS for short, is a youth development organization that provides long-term support services to Black and Latinx youth with a focus on mentorship, education, and love. Among their many services is a comprehensive environmental program. Today, Nando shares with us the various ways he engages youth in the composting process. He also dives into the role that environmental practices play for Black and Latinx youth in helping preserve and honor their cultural roots. Let's dive in. Hey, everyone.
1: Hello. Thank Hello. you for having me.
0: Awesome, we're so glad you could join us today, Nando. Just to hop in, can you tell us a little bit more about your role at Brotherhood Sister Soul as the environmental coordinator?
1: Yeah, so I'll start off with this position was not here before I got here. They hired me with the intentions that I create the environmental program at Brosis because of my experience and my reputation working with young people in environments. So I came into the organization in 1995 as a member, and I graduated the program in 1998, went off to college. And in my summer times, I came back to lead a summer youth employment program with the organization, working in a community garden. So it was just a summer program, and in 2005, I joined the organization full-time, and then in 2007, the young people that I was working with in the summer wanted to continue working with me during the year, and that's where the environmental program at Bro-Sys kind of began in 2007, because seven young people from the summer program out of 15 wanted to continue working in the garden and You know, learning and experiencing more programs with environmental practices and justice and career path. And that's where we began the environmental program. And since then, it was just a program. I was a facilitator. And as the program grew from seven to 15, then to 20 and to 30, and then it grew from just one pro, one chapter or one group to three and four groups. And then that's when the environmental program became. And I became the environmental coordinator because now I had staff under me and I had a a lot of different chapters within the program growing and the environmental coordinator. So now I maintain and lead and manage all of these programs. So one of them is called Gaia Explorers, which we work with the young kids, eight years old. The second one is called Gaia uh, Junior Gaia. Which are middle school kids, sixth grade, seventh grade, and eighth grade, learning about the environment. Then we have our leadership crew, which is the high school kids, which is called Gaia Renaissance. They are the ones who work the most with me, but the biggest group, and also who engage in a lot of the environmental justice and practices in our community. And then we have a green volunteer, which is a tier where kids, different schools, different programs, agencies, volunteer groups that want to come in and do a one day job or a week job or something like that. So we call them green volunteers. And then we have our fifth group is the Gaia alumni crew, which are young people who graduate the program and go off to college. And then in their summer, they want to come back and still participate in our environmental program. So we give them opportunities to help lead our summer program or give them some opportunities to work in the field uh, as a part-time job with some of the job portions that we have.
0: It's super cool to be able to offer that kind of like green learning environment in the middle of a massive city. And I'm wondering what what kinds of stuff do you do with the youth at the garden? What kinds of projects do they work on with you?
1: We have, um, We have them engaging in, first of all, it's kind of like propagating and pruning, planting plants, vegetables, herbs, harvesting fruits, peaches, pears, apples, harvesting basil, collard greens, and packaging them and giving them out to the community. We have a youth market where we buy produce from local farms, and they are the ones who are managing the market. So they are selling these produce to our local community and teaching our community about fresh food access and fresh food recipes. We have the young people cooking recipes with some of these things to learn how to cook fresh recipes and fresh food items so that they can learn the nutrition values and learn these different ways of cooking. But it's also an empowerment for them to kind of be independent. A lot of these kids never knew how to cook or even tried cooking. Some of them do from their culture and their families. So they kind of implement a little different recipes to it. We also have them doing a lot of construction, teaching young women and young men how to use power tools, which they love to use, drill guns, circular saws, reciprocal saws. They learn how to say all these different languages. We also have them do a lot of construction work in the garden, using all the garden tools. And then one of our key pieces is also composting. We collect a lot of food waste from our local community and residents. And sometimes we collect it from our local juicy bars and these young people will come in and process it and put it into our compost bins. We use the hot box model, which is a model that I am privileged and happy to say that I am part of the inventor of this hot box. When I was a kid, as a teenager, I became an inventor of this hot box, and it was, it was such an amazing feeling to have my name on a patent, which was like, wow, I'm a teenager and I'm an inventor or part inventor. But our kids are working with these hot boxes and processing compost. Then we give away some of the compost to local gardeners, local residents, and there's a lot of other projects that we also do here and there, but that's, in a nutshell, some of the things that they do.
2: Nando, I want to hear more about the hotbox composting bin that you were part of inventing. Could you explain what that is to those listening and what brought about its invention?
1: Yeah, the hotbox is a cubic yard design. So it's a three feet by three feet by three feet box with a six holes in front of it where we would put in PVC pipes that goes from the front all the way to the back and in these PVC pipes, there are holes to allow oxygen to come into the compost system. So as we all in the compost world know that if you're composting, you have to turn your compost so that it can get oxygen. So it doesn't become anaerobic. We want an aerobic compost system so that it can have the ecosystem living in them and process all the food and turn it into what we call black gold. This hot box, the beauty of it is that we don't have to turn the compost bin. When I was a teenager, I used to call this, this is the lazy person compost system. So because all you have to do is mix the browns and the greens, the nitrogen and the carbon in the beginning. And when you pour it in, you leave it there. So if you fill up the hot box in a matter of a couple of days or a couple of weeks, you can leave it in the compost bin for about two and a half months without turning it because the PVC pipes work like oxygen straws, in other words, or oxygen tanks. So they pull in this cool air from the outside and as as heat rises, it continues to suck in through the PVC pipes into the compost bin. So we don't have to turn the bin or turn the compost at all. So after two months, two and a half months, you can sift the compost and everything has been decomposed for the most part. And this bin came about back when I was in high school. I joined this organization called Open Road of New York, and they were in the midst of composting with different systems. They were doing the three bin system. They were doing the tumbler. They had a small little windrow ideal system. And then we as teenagers, with me specifically, I'm always thinking about what's an easier solution to a problem. So they had this uh, idea of putting in these wooden containments that kind of bring in the oxygen. So the the PVCs were actually made out of wood. And it wasn't six, it was like four. So then we came in and started like throwing out different ideas and we explore and we experimented with different type of material, experimented with different type of designs until we found the right system to work with. And then I started doing experiments with this. So I had six bins in in the Lower East Side, where one of them I had it with, with leaves, you know, leaves that we collected from the garden and from local parks with the food waste. And another bin I had wood chips and in another bin, I had horse manure with wood chips and food waste. And I tried all these different systems and followed it every day for three months, tested the temperature, tested the quality. I moved the, the compost around to see what it looked like. And they all came out with pretty good readings and pretty good numbers. They all did decompose within two to three months, some faster and than the others. And they all reached high numbers. So this system in the composting world is considered a thermophilic system, which they reach high temperatures of 180 degrees for a couple of days. And then it stays at 160 for about maybe a week. Then it goes down to 120 where you really want your compost bin to reach for about another week, a week and a half. So yeah, this hot box has been a a hot commodity. We have it now in different Green Thumb Gardens. We have it in Earth Matters and Governor's Island here in New York City. We also have it in schools, some schools who are doing composting with their young people. We have it in those systems as well. So yeah, I think I answered that question, maybe.
0: Yeah, that's cool that you're able to make your own. You know, I I know there's a lot of DIY systems out there, but to do it with the aerated static perforated pipes is super cool, especially because For anybody out there who hasn't turned a compost pile before, it's it's a sweaty affair, right? Like it's the compost, it's heavy and it's wet. And so creating that solution for labor is really awesome. And I'm wondering, for those of you who have not turned a compost pile before, it's also not the most glamorous job, right? And I'm wondering, how have you managed to engage youth with the composting process and kind of show them how important it is in the larger food system?
1: It's a great question. Dealing with young people is, is, a, is a task in itself, especially teenagers. Having teenagers work, physical work, is also another task in itself. So I think my experience, you, you know, for the years that I've been, been working with young people, I would say my best solution to getting them to do anything is feeding them. I promise I'll feed them some pizza and I get them some drinks and juice or whatever, or I'll promise a burger or maybe a smoothie afterwards. I feel like you can get teenagers to do anything when you promise them a happy meal, (laughs) not a McDonald's happy meal, but just a happy meal. So yeah, that's the one thing that I would do first. And then once I get them to kind of like be engaged into the process I think what has worked for me to have young people really be a part of this composting world is teaching them about the compost process itself, but it teaches them all the little pieces of it. And I think the first part of it is letting them feel a part of it, letting them feel like they are a key part in providing the environment, the ecosystem, you know, when they seem to be like, heroes or seem to be like a, a key part of the process of the system, of the, the, the ecosystem. I feel like then they have pride in it. They get a sense of pride for themselves. They have a, a self-esteem, a empowerment for themselves. And just talking to them about what you're doing for our key workers of the compost is, you know, the, the worms and the roly-polies and, you know, the millipedes and centipedes. Things that they are afraid of at first, you know, we talk to them about how not to be afraid, so we'll play around with the worms first and teach them how there's no reason to be scared of it, kind of like touching it, and they'll be scared to even put it in their palm and going through those fears. Then after we establish a connection with the ecosystem that lives within compost, then we, I started teaching them about what. Do these insects need to survive? What? How can we build their home, uh, their community, their their neighborhood, their city? Each one of these bins for them is like a whole city. You know, think about it that way. So let's add some food. Let's add some water. Let's add some warmth to them. Let's give them some oxygen. So then, once they, you know we t- start teaching them, like we're building this kind of like community for them, it becomes kind of like a game, or becomes kind of like like a hero complex for them. Like let's let's create this for them, and then I get them to start working on it. The last thing that I would do is everybody who's been in composting, you know that there is moments of smelly process, a very dirty smelly component to composting that a lot of people probably feel like that's the worst thing about composting. That's the last thing that I teach the young people. So when I'm working with the food waste, I try to get the freshest thing that we can, teach them how to break it down, teach them how this is nitrogen, and then you mix it with the browns to get a nice little recipe for the building blocks of this environment for our new Found friend, macroorganisms and microorganisms, and then once they get there, then we're making it, and they feel they feel good for me. they feel good about it. Then I start bringing in the smelly parts so that you know they're already in the process and everything is good. Now it's like okay, now we gotta just do the work. Now think of this as a, a mind a mindful scenario where you spiritually feel good about providing for an ecosystem. Now let's think about it as a physical plus for yourself. Let's do this as a workout. Let's get all this messy and smelly food waste and let's just think of it as like a nice little workout to just cut it up and turn it up and put it in a bin. So now it becomes a mind, body, and soul type of job that they feel proud about. And then I have them help other ones to kind of bring them in. So teenagers can bring their own peers in. So if I could get one hooked on, they'll get two more hooked on and now we got a team, so that's the way we do it.
2: That's great. Nando, you sound so passionate about the work that you do about environmental practices and working with youth. And I want to know where this passion is rooted in. Could you walk us through your background and how you got started in the environmental space?
1: Sure. Now you're going deep into my roots of stories here. So I'm uh, born and raised in the Lower East Side of New York City, My parents are Dominicans, and whenever we used to go back to my parents' country, there was always a trip to the farm. There was always a meal or always a visiting a family or whatever, and it always had to deal with going to the farm. So my grandfather owned a very large, large farm in the middle of the country, the city called Bornau. Uh, the state called Monsignor Noel, which is in the middle of the country. And my grandfather's farm was right on the outskirts of the, the city called now And his farm, whenever I went there, it was always a boring feeling to go to, to deal with the people and being in the party atmosphere. Like his house had no TV, you know, he had no games or no toys. So me as a little kid going to this farm, I had to find my own entertainment. So what I used to do is I used to go and travel and explore the farm itself. So finding my my way through the different crops that he had growing. He had cacaos, he had oranges, he had chinolas, he had coffee, he had coconut trees. He had a swarm of different crops that I can't even think of right now. But pineapples like everything so for me it was a curiosity but it was also like walking through a maze you know going through the platano farms and the guineo farms and like finding my way around it and running into animals in some sort of way they were they were not they weren't wild animals they were like part of the farm but at the same time they lived freely throughout the farm so i would run through the Platano field and run into like a, a family of ducks you know where the mother was walking and the little ducks were walking behind her and and I was stopping it and gaze at the beauty of these little ducklings just kind of swaddling through the Platano farms and seeing it all the time was like I want one of those they're so cute you know you just wanted to pet one so I tried to pet one, and I saw the mother come after me, and there was a battle. You know, It was a fight. All right, I'm not going to win this because she's going to peck me. So I would go walk around, and i see a chicken with her uh, little chicks. Try to catch a chicken that was so hard to catch. It was impossible. Go to my grandfather's pigsty and see the baby pigs and the big pigs and see how smelly it was. But at the same time, just curiosity. is just kind of like trying to get close to them. And they would scare me because they were like oink so hard. Whenever somebody comes, they are looking for food. To me, I'm thinking like they want to bite me and stuff like that. So I'm like running away. So it was it was it was a passion came from the curiosity of nature, just going through this farm and taking a cacao um, seed off of the tree, opening it up and eating this white fruit that was on the inside, and then learning about this white. Fruit becoming chocolate at some point down the down the line, and it was fascinating. And tasting the coffee uh, grounds off the plant and finding it so bitter and so nasty, and how does this become coffee? And, and then taking a chinola fruit and seeing how the hard the hard shell looks. It looks just like an orange, but it's a hard shell. And when you open it, it's such a sour taste on the inside, but it's a really good sour taste. So the curiosity of just learning about nature and, and farm and the environment and and going through this farm gave me the courage and also the lack of fear of wanting to get dirty and get my hands dirty and and go through the mud and go through this these different crops, you know, and and there's, a, there's a, to give you a short story too, say a, a very inspirational story that I went through one of the workers of my grandfather lived on the farm and he lived in a remote little shack on the other side of the rice crop that he had that my grandfather had and you know how rice is grown is grown in a very swampy muddy piece of land like it's always gotta be wet. That's how rice is grown. And he used to maintain it. And we had to get to him one time my uncles who lived on the farm also was tasked with delivering food to him and i was bored and i wanted to ride the horse and they was going to take the horses i was like i want to ride the horse leave one of the horses behind so i could ride it and they're like no you want to ride the horse you got to come with us i was like all right so i came with them and we went all the way so far away and this guy was living in a small shack on his own and we gave him food and on my way back i was just curious about like you who lives there with him like why does he live there like how could he want to live that way and I was told that that's just how he loved to live he lived off the grid you know he was fed he had his shelter he had a roof he had no worries no bills no necessity of anything he had his machete for his protection and he lived happy he lived there for years and he just maintained his piece of land and provided for my grandfather and my grandfather provided for him and just knowing that that peace of mind and peace of of, of of nature being with you and being around nature and just living like that just just always stuck with me as part of like this this is beauty this is nature at its purest moment with humans and i just love that 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 idea And ever since then, I just wanted to give back to nature. You know, a lot of my friends call me nature boy in a lot of ways. And I always tell them, you know, I take care of the environment. The environment takes care of me. And that's how I think about it.
0: What a beautiful story. And I love, I love the way I can picture everything that you're saying as you're talking. It's you you definitely have a gift with storytelling. But one thing that I really connect to is food as the gateway to environmental work and growing up and recognizing the ability of food to be able to heal the body or provide the body with nutrients and sustenance and the thing that I didn't get to until I was older was realizing the role that we have to play in the food system in returning that nutrients back to the soil and back to the ground and I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how you came to realize like, the connection and the integral piece that compost plays in food systems and in our relationship with food, and maybe how that you know, plays out in the environmental work you do with youth in New York.
1: Yeah, I think my moment of learning how compost becomes a healing to our environment, to our soil, was when I had to that organization that I was working with in Lower East Side, we were working on a piece of land that was contaminated. And it was contaminated because it used to be a bus depot and there was a lot of oil being spilled or gas and petroleum being spilled into the soil. So for us to even begin to convert this vacant, contaminated land into a beautiful garden, we had to excavate and bring in new soil. And just the, the amount of soil that we brought in made me wonder, like, you know, where do you, we can't always have, you know, good soil everywhere. Like, there's got to be a way that we can fix the soil, re-nutrient the soil, or or heal the soil that we or need and use. And learning about composting gave me that, that joy and that proudness of, you know, this is a... Not only a, a environmental justice, but it's an environmental need. It's a an environmental key piece of keeping our environment, you know, healthy. Is the soil and the fact that composting can actually fix any type of or most type of contaminated soil was a really uh, astonishing epiphany for me in a sense of like you know whenever we need to fix something composting is the key to fixing soil in your ground so if you want to grow food and grow all this crops and you know have nutrients and food access to your community and you don't have a location for it like let's try to fix the soil where you think that is damaging or whatever it is and then we can grow a farm that was very uh, astonishing for me to realize and learn to the point where it's like, you know, composting is one of the major key practices that if everybody knew and everybody did in our communities, we will be giving back to our environment and providing food access for many people to come. Like, you know, knowing that fresh soil, you know, specifically composting helps that for our farms and for our crops, for our gardens, is is, is a very key piece. And, and learning that was a reason for composting being a part of our program. No matter what we do, composting has to be a part of our program.
2: Okay, Nando, so on the topic of youth programming, I was wondering, why is it important to engage and educate specifically Black and Latinx youth on you know, environmental practices and gardening, composting, because it's my understanding that Brotherhood Sister Soul focuses on Black and Latinx communities. Is that right?
1: Yes. Well, I mean, our, our focus is for the Black and Latinx community because of the history of our Black and less community. is It's the history of culture being taken away and our roots being stripped away from you know, the history that our ancestors have gone through. And because of of all of that history that our ancestors have gone through, a lot of our roots and and practices and culture of being in tune with nature has been taken away or forgotten by this, you know, following of generations that we are going through now. And a lot of our ancestors who have come here from different places around the, you know, our black and African roots, you know, they try very hard to keep a lot of the culture alive. And, you know, there was a big movement on seeds, you know, and trying to survive and bring seeds from our communities and our countries with them, with the women, you know, braided into their hair so that they can bring that culture and those vegetables and those fruits and that culture with them because you know our food is part of our our lives is part of our culture food is a big piece of how you know culture survives within communities so teaching young people to be back into environment and back into the gardening back into nature back into food back into providing back to our environment has always been a a part of our history, a part of our culture. And I feel for us, we feel like that is a way to bring back uh, or hopefully spiritually bring back righteousness to our young people, bring back the goal of giving and and taking. So if you're going to take from nature, eat a plant, eat a tree or whatever, or eat a fruit from a tree, you know, there's, we have to give back. And for me, the, in the environmental program is that is this way of teaching culture, trying to bring back historical practices and, and keeping historical culture alive within our young people, but also to bring pride uh, into the work and the efforts and the, and the fight that our ancestors have done to bring, to continue our culture alive, but also to bring that piece of nature that piece of of history that piece of livelihood of human beings being a part of a living ecosystem so Gaia we call all of in a lot of our programs we call we use the name Gaia as the name of Greek mythology that the Greeks are given the planet because if you give something a name you give it a soul you give it a being, you give it livelihood, you give it existence. And we want, our, we in our programs want our young people to not live on a planet, but live with a planet. Not take from the planet, but share with the planet. You know, so whatever we take, we give back. And that was, that was embedded into our roots, the African roots and the Black roots and the Caribbean roots. And the Tainos and the Arawaks and the Mayans, the fact that we share with our planet is part of our culture rather than just take and abuse. So the reason why we specifically want to teach environmental programming, environmental justice to our young people, Black and, and Latino X, is because we want them to go back and touch a little bit about where their cultures come from.
0: I love that. It's so beautiful to think about like the tradition and ritual of food as a culture bearer and yeah, have your, have your mission partly be continue that like foundational connection to something that has brought so much identity and so much meaning to culture in the past. I really connect to that. And also I, it's just fun for me to think about you doing this in New York city because of like, this is, It's such a urban environment, right? And so I'm wondering in light of, you know, new studies, new information, new news, new environmental catastrophes happening that are specifically related to climate change, like has the way that you're engaging with youth or has your environmental programming shifted at all to meet like the growing environmental concerns or have you noticed any more specific or direct ties between compost and climate change that you could talk about?
1: I wouldn't say too much of a shift, more of like the way I like to think of my program a little bit similar to many but also different. It's like you go to a lake, right, and you throw a pebble in the lake and that lake Um, That rock that you throw, that little pebble that you throw is like a ripple effect, right? So that, that ripple effect slowly gets to the edges of the lake. The bigger the rock, the bigger the ripple, right? I like to think of us as this small pebble in a large lake and throwing a pebble in our community. So in West Harlem, right? So we are the pebble being thrown in West Harlem. And as a small ripple effect, we try to create change or create awareness into our community that hopefully ripples out to other nearby communities and continues and continues and continues. So when we talk about climate change, we talk about gorilla planting trees, nurturing our trees. The ripple effect is providing support to our local farms. So we try to engage on giving them support by selling their produce, going to other community gardens and helping them with their composting system or helping them plant the tree or being a location where you could come and collect or pick up a tree from the Million, from the Million Tree Initiative that was going on in the city. So being this kind of like pilot of new ideas, new environmentally sustainable practices when it comes to like recycling and reusing, when it comes to solar power and wind power or aquaculture, we don't mass use any of these ideas. We do small parts about all of it so that when people come to us, it's like a small ripple in their minds that they could think of sustainability within their community. So hopefully they go to their community and they implement some of the things that they see from us. So if we wanna affect climate change in a certain way, I think it starts from home. And what I like to teach our young people is what we're learning here, I want you to practice it in your house. Teach your parents, teach your siblings, you know, waste, separate your waste. start composting, start reusing some of the stuff you have, start changing how you use energy, start being less, you know, start to think about reducing and rather than throwing away and, and, and being so, so much of a consumer and just buying, buying, buying. Like, think of many different ways that you can start to change at home and that effect will trickle down to your siblings, to your cousins, to your friends. So I always think of when I'm trying to hit, when I'm trying to combat a big environmental issue, I feel like that if it's not embedded in your home first and yourself first, it's going to be hard for it to really affect in other places. And this is just my way of thinking. Like that lake idea, you know, throwing a pebble in the lake. You know, if you had 20 people and they all threw pebbles in the lake, now you have a lot of ripple effects that connect to each other. But, you know, start from yourself. And then have invite a, a friend to come to the lake and throw a pebble. And invite on. So that metaphor is kind of like you start from you and then you start inviting. So the same way have with the, the environmental program. We only had seven kids, and those seven kids invited a friend each and became 15 or 14. You know, we had this one young lady this summer, uh, she's a senior graduating, and she goes to a Catholic school, and she was presenting at her school, and she presented our environmental program as a key changing of her, of her life, that she really enjoyed doing her whole high school, elementary, young career. She's been with us since she was in the elementary program and been a part of the environmental program for eight years. And when she shared this information to all her young peers in her school, this summer, we, had, we hired to work with us for the summer about seven students of her school that she don't even know who they are. But they all heard from her to come work with us. And now they are all going to be Gaia Renaissance members which are, you know, social, environmental key changers of our community. And that, I feel, is how I like to combat climate change and environmental injustice and environmental issues is by teaching or helping one person at a time in our community so that they can help their people in their community.
2: That's great. That's actually a wonderful transition to my next question for you. Nando, one of the goals of the Composting for Community podcast is inspire and motivate other community composters. Is there anything else you would like to share with our audience? I know you're full of, and you've already shared so many inspiring stories, but is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience that you think would be inspiring, whether it be on composting, you know, food justice, anything like that?
1: You know, in the the composting world, not everybody, but I mean, not only composting, just in the environmental world, there's a lot of community gardens that always have this fear of young people being in their space. And there's a lot of people who don't, who are encouraging young people to work in their gardens and farms and whatever. There is a lack of space for young people in general, in all of our cities. And I think that our community, our environmental community, our composting community, we have an opportunity where young people are looking for something to do and be a part of something. I think that the more our environmental community focus on creating programs, creating opportunities for young people to be a part of, we Maybe helping the next generation of environmental justice pioneers. I think that we, however, we can, whatever we need to do to get young people employed, fed, you know, and opportunity for them to be a part of the changes is where we need to focus a lot of our energy. It's good to do to have all of these environmental programs and have adults running it but I think we you know that's how I started as a young person and my mentor Paula Hewitt and Tim Rutgers gave me leadership roles as a teenager and if it wasn't for those leadership roles I don't think I would be where I'm at now you know because they gave me that leadership role that opportunity to to share my ideas and and practice it and teach others of what I'm thinking and just give me an opportunity or give me a trial. Like, even if it failed, at least I failed with my own idea and practice it. Like a lot of people don't like to give young people the opportunity to give their ideas and fail, you know, or just give them a chance to share their ideas. And I feel like in our environmental communities, we should open and try our best to have as many opportunities and programs where young people take a leadership role, but also be a part of the movement at a, in a strong position.
0: Wow. I I love that. I mean, it's, it's so true, right? Like this world is not for us. It's for everybody to come and everything and all the living creatures that will come after us, right? And so to, to create and pass on that stewardship from a young age, I think is going to be as you were saying like absolutely instrumental in the success of our kids and like the health and well-being of our kids but also of our planet and and realizing that there's no way to separate those things right i love the way that you talk about our existence here as part of the ecosystem of life and and that there is that, it, that it's seamless right there's no there's no place where one ends and the other begins so it's been so lovely talking to you and hearing your stories and I want to thank you so much for the work that you're doing with youth and for the work that you're doing inspiring these kids to get into it, to get passionate about it, to grow food, to share food with their community, to recycle nutrients in their environment, to become environmental stewards. I, I mean, I wish I could clone you and make a hundred more and put you everywhere all across the United States. Really, it's it's been such a privilege to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. And the cloning is what I'm trying to do with these young people I have around me. So hopefully they are a bunch of me's or more than me for the future. So thank you for having me and allowing me to share my knowledge in whatever capacity people can take it because you know we're not always teaching everybody because everybody knows a lot of things but sometimes an inspiration comes from the weirdest stories that you can hear so i hope something inspires someone to do something else something more in in their area so thank you for having me
0: it was a pleasure all right until next time folks take care bye-bye thanks so much for listening to this episode of the composting for community podcast from the institute for local self-reliance we'll be back again next month with a new episode our theme music is i don't know from grapes be sure to check out the rest of the ilsr podcast family including building local power local energy rules and community broadband bits at ilsr.org